Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Did God help you find that great parking spot? Did God cause the bad weather? Did God cause that last mass shooting? Does everything happen for a reason? Join us for the message, Everything Happens for a Reason. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Has God ever helped you find a great parking spot? <laughs> uh, did God cause this weather to come upon us this weekend? Uh, did God cause that last mass shooting? Hmm. Does everything happen for a reason? Well, we're going to be exploring that a little bit later on in our service today. This week's scripture comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Listen now to the word of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. When I was a teenager back at Richland Hills United Methodist Church in Fort Worth, which has since become City Point UMC, we had one of the best youth programs in the entire area. We were a large group, probably at least 40 total, but we were just unusually close. Many of us had grown up together in that church, so we were not only close friends, in many ways we considered ourselves family. I mean, even now, even if it's been months and sometimes even years since we've seen each other, it just really doesn't matter. We pick up right where we left off as if no time has passed, before you know it, we are just laughing it up just like we did in the old times. Now, there are different factors that contributed to the, to the quality of that youth program. And first of all, that entire congregation at that time as a whole, was, it was healthy and thriving. And we were blessed with some outstanding senior pastors and youth pastors. As I've said before, one, one of the youth pastors that, that went through uh, Richland Hills was a young seminary student named Mike McKee who recently served as our bishop here in the North Texas Conference. But this youth group, this youth group had something, something extra, something that couldn't be quantified or manufactured or labeled. It's as if just the right personalities were interacting with each other at just the right time and at just the right place. In other words, this youth group had chemistry, kind of a spirit if you will. It was able to create this bond among a group of teenagers and young adults that, that would end up lasting a lifetime. We had a reunion of the entire group back in 2003, and in our conversations, it was interesting to note that despite having had this very positive church experience growing up, only about half of us were active in a church as adults. The others said that they had tried going back to church as an adult, but it was just never as good 
is that old youth group, and they gradually stopped going. And I thought that was actually a very unfortunate consequence, though it does illustrate just how profound the effect of the involvement in that youth group was for us. But for myself, it had an opposite effect. As an adult, there have been many times, many times, when I've been so angry and so put out with the church, its intransigence to change, its failure to live up to the very ideals that it espouses, I was so put out that I was ready to quit. But then I'd remember. I would remember just how good church could be. And so I went back to try again. One of our fondest memories in this youth group was our annual ski trips. We took two trips a year. We'd take a mission trip in the summer, uh, oftentimes to Oklahoma. But every winter, the day after Christmas, we'd all leave on a snow skiing trip, and we would pile into the church bus and head for New Mexico. We would stay at a church camp, and we would, we would ski at this very teensy, rinky-dink little ski resort called Sipapu. You probably never heard of it. But it was back in the days when most churches had a rickety old church bus that was really actually no more than a rickety old school bus, completely devoid of any modern safety features. And for two years straight, that old bus broke down on our way home while we were in some godforsaken corner of West Texas. And so for two years straight, we had to spend New Year's Eve crammed in a bus stop, or excuse me, a truck stop, while we were waiting for either our bus to be repaired or for a working bus to come out and pick us up. And so after this happening two years in a row, the next year the parents insisted that we rent a new bus to go to New Mexico. But eventually, as is the way of youth groups, we graduated, we went off to college, we went off to full-time careers, but I miss those people terribly, and to tell you the truth, I still do. Several years later, several years after we left that beloved youth group, I wrote a story about a different youth group uh, from Central Texas. In this youth, youth groups, in this youth group, their bus on their trip got swept away in a flash flood. And while the majority miraculously survived, a full third, one third, of the young people were swept away and drowned. And I was deeply moved by this story because I tried to imagine in my head what that would have been like for these youth. And I tried to imagine if that had been our youth group. So what if instead of our bus breaking down, we had been involved in some horrific accident? And so one minute we're all laughing and joking and singing, and the next minute, a third of us were just gone, just gone in the blink of an eye. And so instead of this lifetime of warm memories, we'd have to contend with a lifetime of post-traumatic stress. I continued to follow the story over the next several weeks and months, and there was one article that I found particularly interesting. It was an interview with a United Methodist pastor who had gone back to school and become trained as a psychotherapist and now worked as a therapist. And he volunteered to go down to this church in Central Texas and offer some crisis counseling to the congregation, including the surviving youth as well as the grieving families. And the church in question was not a Methodist church, but that didn't matter to him. 
But not being a Methodist church, however, it also did not follow Wesleyan theology. And as the therapist counseled the various individuals and the families, he noticed that they kept repeating the same conviction. Everything happens for a reason. And they were convinced that this bus being swept away must have been God's will. And this accident somehow played a direct role in some grand scheme of God's. The therapist knew from experience that as people progress through the grief process, sooner or later they usually come to a time when they start to doubt many of these things that they have believed for years because now these beliefs will be tested and refined by the furnace of real life. Some will lose faith. Some will lose faith forever. Some will lose faith for at least a little while. Others will find a way to make sense of their faith in light of what they now know about life's realities. A few, very few people, maybe no people, ever come to the other side of a life-shattering event and not have their relationship with God forever changed. But the therapist also knew from experience that these conversations about God and faith, they come later in the grief process. Right now, those who did not drown in that flood were drowning in grief. And when a person is drowning... You don't take away the one life vest that's the only thing that's keeping their head above the water. So the therapist just listened, as good therapists usually do. He never questioned their theology or made them try or tried to make them think more deeply about their understanding of God's providence because he knew that would come later. Right now, their rock-solid conviction that this accident must have been the will of God and that everything happens for a reason was the only thing that was keeping those families from going insane. A maxim like, everything happens for a reason, is one of those phrases that sounds vaguely biblical. I've heard it repeated multiple times under a wide variety of circumstances, and yet that, that particular sentence nowhere appears in the Bible. It's instead a conviction based on one possible interpretation of Scripture. So over these next few weeks, we're going to be examining several popular sayings that often come out of the mouths of Christians. Some of you may have said them themselves. I know I have from time to time. But I do think it behooves us to perhaps give some thought uh, to these verbalisms before we repeat them. We mean well when we say them, but these sayings might not always be as helpful as we intend. But it's not that there isn't some truth in these sayings. Uh, there usually is some truth. It's just that they usually only point to one aspect of the truth. So they are, in a sense, half-truths. And a deeper look into Scripture, I think, almost always, reveals a far more complicated, subtle, and nuanced picture. And I think this is certainly the case with the saying, everything happens for a reason. This aphorism is usually a response to a broader question of God's providence and God's divine authority. How is God active in the world? In what ways does the creator care for the creation? And how do we know that God cares for us? There are two standard answers that Christians give to these questions, both, both of which, by the way, can be supported by Scripture. 
And the first way is usually referred to as Calvinism or theological determinism. And it's named after the 16th century Protestant reformer John Calvin. And Calvin believed that if God were truly sovereign, that is if God was truly the all-powerful king of the universe, then everything that happens must be the result of God's direct command and an expression of God's perfect will for the universe. If something happened that was not a direct result of God's command, then God was not truly sovereign. And by extension, then, God would not be uh, omnipotent. That is, God would not be all-powerful. And this was the type of theology that was found in that church that, that experienced that awful tragedy. For these survivors, at least for now, the belief that the accident was God's will helped them to feel less out of control and to feel less hopeless. You know, children often feel more secure if they can believe that their parents are in firm control and are capable of protecting them. And so it is for many, many Christians. The idea that God is sovereign over all provides a sense of comfort and security. At least someone's in control of this. On the other hand, the idea that everything that happens is a direct result of God's direct command well, it can end up leading us to some pretty troubling conclusions. It means that human beings have no real freedom. Everything we think and say and do has been predetermined by an all-powerful God. And if you extend this reasoning, it means that some of us are destined for salvation and others of us are destined for damnation. And we have no choice and no control. And so therefore, Christ did not die for everyone, but only for those who are predestined to be saved. And there, therefore, God does not love everyone, but only those who are predestined to be saved. Calvinism also logically leads to the conclusion that if God causes all things to happen, then God is the author of war and famine and disease. It means that the Holocaust was God's will. This goes beyond saying that God simply allows evil and instead affirm that God causes evil. When we say that everything happens for a reason, then we are treading dangerously close to saying then the same thing. Because behind that saying, everything happens for a reason, there is this implication that God has caused, not just allowed, but caused, this to happen in order to fulfill some sort of a higher reasoning for which we are not privy. Now, another approach to this question of the nature of God's providence is a belief known as, as deism. You may remember this from American history. The great patriot Thomas Jefferson was perhaps history's most famous deist. In fact, many of our uh, nation's uh, founding fathers were deists. Deists claimed that God is indeed the creator of the universe. As part of creation, God has set the natural laws of cause and effect into motion. And the universe is likened to a big clock. Because at that time, in the 1700s, clocks were kind of a, a, a brand new technology. It was felt that God designed the clock and built the clock and then wound up the clock. 
And after that, God sat back and just let the clock run as it was designed to with no interference or intervention. Everything that happened then was a result of either human choice or the natural laws of nature in action. Now, between these two extremes of Calvinism and deism is something called Arminianism, best known to us through the theology of John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. Wesley believed that human beings had true freedom to choose to respond to God's grace. And that freedom and power to respond were in and of themselves a form of grace, known in Methodist theology as provenient grace. Because God loves all people, Christ died for the entire human race. Indeed, for the entire world, not just the predestined few. Yes, God is the sovereign, omnipotent creator and king of the universe, but within the umbrella of this sovereignty, God gave human beings free will and dominion over the earth. Though I will add the word dominion comes with a lot of baggage, which could be another sermon in and of itself. But God works in this world in a variety of ways. Sometimes, God works through mighty acts that we might call miracles, but much more often, God works through much subtler means. God works through the actions of the body of Christ, known as the church. God acts through the motivations of human love, and God acts through the motivations and through that veil of human consciousness. The Lord can speak in a mighty roar, but more often, God speak to us in that still, small voice. So, does everything happen for a reason? Yes, but not in the way we usually understand that. The reason that something happens may simply be due to the cause and effect of the natural laws of nature. In swift water, vehicles can get swept away by the force of the water and people drown. Something may happen because a person made a very poor decision that had detrimental consequences for themselves and or others. Something may happen because chance and chaos are just real forces at work in creation. <clears throat> and I think something, sometimes things may happen for no other reason than it is the will of God. But I think the real answer to the question, the real thing, the real reason that anything happens is because God knows that the only way we can grow for us to become more Christ-like is to have to live in a world that we cannot fully control or predict. For example, phones sometimes ring when we're not expecting them to. The only way for us to grow, emotionally, spiritually, morally, ethically, is if we have true freedom that comes with real consequences. The very fact that life is not fair is part of the challenge that we're being called to confront. This group of people over here has more of the world's resources. What are they going to do with those resources? This person has had to survive a harrowing ordeal. How are they going to cope with it? This person was born with a handicapping condition. How are they going to rise to the challenge? 
And so then we get back to that very famous verse that Michael read from Romans. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. But there's another way to translate that uh, that's suggested by the very well-known New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. And he has suggested that a more accurate translation may be, in all things God works together with those who love him to bring about what is good. Now it's subtle, but try to hear this difference. And I'm going to have uh, Kim put up a slide of those two... um, uh, <laughs> actually, the, the, the top one that says standard translation is actually the New Revised Standard. The one on bottom is the one from N.T. Wright. But look, look at that again. The one on top is from the New Revised Standard. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. But then the one that N.T. Wright suggests, in all things, thank you, that's very good. In all things, God works together with those who love him to bring about what is good. God works with those who love him. That is you and me. It's, it's, it's us and God working together. God works with us. God works through us to bring about good. We have free will, which includes real freedom to either choose or reject God's good purposes. And we can choose whether to work with God to become co-creators of a good world that expresses the love and grace of God, or we can work at cross-purposes to the detriment of ourselves and others. Thank you. In the end, stuff happens. But listen to what else this verse is saying. If we love God, if we trust God's faithfulness, if we work with the will of God, then eventually everything will work out for good. And the opposite is also implied. If we fail to love and trust God, and if we actively work against the will of God, then things aren't going to work out so well. But no matter what happens, And this is what I trust. God can always bring order from chaos, light from darkness, and life from death. No matter what happens, the Holy Spirit working in our lives can use whatever happens to make us better disciples, better spouses, better parents, better friends, just better people. All things do work together for good. And in the end, that's the reason that anything, or truly the reason that everything happens in God's world. Amen. Please receive this benediction. In all things, God works together with those who love him to bring about what is good. So go out into the world. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Go out into the world and bring into reality the goodwill of God. In the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next week, we continue our sermon series, What the Bible Doesn't Say, 
with the message, God helps those who help themselves. You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, our YouTube channel, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. If you like what you're hearing, you can also support our ministry with your gift through our website, tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead, and we'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.